Hi, I'm Rex Miller, and you are listening to The Resilience Lab, an Imagine a Place production where we explore how to integrate resilience into work and our lives through the journey and story of others. So today I'm excited to speak with Amanda Schneider. We've been buddies for five or six years now. She's an amazing thought leader. She is the president of Think Lab and became part of the research division of Sandow. So we'll dive into that. But one of the reasons why I love talking to her is she's a little geeky and I love that. Amanda, welcome to the Resilience Lab. Let's start out a little bit with your background. I was on the manufacturing side, you were too. It's interesting, when I pull up your LinkedIn, we both went to the University of Illinois, but the comment says, Amanda started at the University of Illinois after you started. (laughs) Quite a bit after, because I started in 1973, and we won't have to ask when you started. (laughs) Let's paint the picture, the Amanda picture of your journey through this industry. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you that I've always been very career driven. And I graduated from University of Illinois in industrial design. And Illinois, if anyone knows it, is a big engineering school. They have a huge job fair. They have 500 plus companies come every year. The industrial design program, however, is much lesser known. And we have no job fair, no job placement, no help. So my ambition started very early on with getting a job fair lined up for the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana in the industrial design program. So I'll spare you all of the juicy details, but suffice to say, I failed my first two years that I tried. And by my senior year, come hell or high water, I was going to get this job fair off the ground. So uh, we sent 250 postcards across the IDSA Midwest chapter, and one postcard was answered happened to be a man named Craig Schultz, who led design for Allsteel, a furniture brand you probably know and love. And that happenstance is how I got my start in this industry. Wow. Um, I will yeah, I will say that that job fair still goes on today, more than 20 years later, I think it is. So well, at least you had an ambition to find something. I was not quite as clear as to what I wanted to do. I just knew that I had five tennis rackets in a suitcase, so that's what I did out of college. After All Steel, how did you get into kind of the research side of things and what you're doing today? So you may not have heard this story, but actually a funny story. When I graduated college, I had a broken foot. It was my right foot, and I couldn't drive. And this was pre-Uber in Muscatine, Iowa. So I actually called another designer that I'd met in the interview process, and she offered to give me a ride to work. Now, to set the stage, this was during the dot bomb, literally during the dot bomb, I graduated in 2001 to date myself. So you can imagine the effects that that had on the interiors industry and specifically on furniture. There weren't, you know, it was a bit of a rough time for the industry. So Alsea at the time was going through a mode where they had a lot of designers employed in Muscatine, Iowa, and they were starting to outsource. So uh, long story short, this lovely woman, we'll call her Sarah, that gave me a ride to work. We both walk in 
And our boss greets us at the door and our boss basically lets her walk by and says, Amanda, we're going to be laying Sarah off today. She'll have her things out by 1145 and you can move your things in. So, um, you know, when I tell the story, everyone first asks like, well, how did you get home? You know, I did, I learned to drive with my left foot after that. I got a ride and then I learned to drive with my left foot. But this was really the start of them insourcing a lot of design to moving to an outsource model. And that continued to kind of progress till about a year in. They said, Amanda, you seem to have an aptitude for marketing. Do you want to stay in design or go into marketing? And I thought, well, designers at this point are getting fired and marketers are getting promoted. Like, I'm going to do that. So I went back to school to get my MBA. And I actually helped them start up their first ever market research team and really, truly found my passion around market research that brings out that geeky side you talked about earlier. Wow. So, but that's also a lesson in resilience too. I mean, I remember the dot-com bust because that's when my whole career just got turned upside down. So I remember it vividly. But for you, you were just coming out of college. How did it feel? What were you going through? And it sounded like you pivoted very quickly. You know, I did pivot very quickly. And, you know, I think it's a daunting decision to decide when you're 17, 18 years old, what you want to do, what you want to be when you grow up. And um, so I think, you know, my advice to anyone following in those shoes, especially young professionals, is don't think you have to have it all planned out. I think often it's more about carping the DM and taking advantage of the opportunities that are in front of you, which I feel like is exactly what I did. You also exhibited a lot of confidence that you could kind of shift and move into another role. That probably has some roots to it. So growing up, where did you get kind of that chutzpah or that confidence that it's kind of fearless? It, it's funny. So I'm one of two girls and it was, it was like a mission of my father's to raise us to believe that we could do anything you put your mind to and I love you no matter what. And I think it's those kind of grounding things. You know, I'm, I'm now a parent. So thinking back to some of these foundational things that my parents instilled in me, really makes me think about how I want to build that resilience into my children as well. Nice. So let's kind of jump up a little bit in time. You started Think Lab two years before the pandemic hit. So you're just getting started. And I can remember you hosting these forums on industry trends. And these were kind of must see events and the research you had, where were you headed before the pandemic? Where was this whole show going? Mm-hmm. Well, let me um, start with kind of another big life change for me. I think I mentioned early on, I've always been very, very career driven. And when we had children, my husband and I, we now yeah. have three boys, but I will say my entree into motherhood was not an easy one. And I really, really struggled with work-life balance. So actually what now is Think Lab started out as little old me in 2011, really thinking I was flushing my career down the toilet to have better work-life balance and be around to raise my children because I wow. hate this notion that you know they're in daycare for every hour, every waking hour and why our time kind of has to line up with uh, the hours we work or the hours of daycare that happen to be the hours that they're mostly awake and that most of my salary was going to pay for childcare downtown Chicago. 
So in 2011, I left the official working world and started out thinking I was taking a sidestep in my career. We at the time were moving to Atlanta. So I actually drove back from Atlanta with a newborn, a two-month-old. He was two months old. My mother came with me to support me so that I could scour the halls of Neocon. And I actually was able to land two clients that year. That first year, two turned into three for the next year. The next year, three turned into four, 100% by word of mouth. That would have been 2014. We actually moved back to Chicago area where a lot of my network is. And in 2015, we worked with 15 different clients, which meant it got beyond what I could manage. And still at the time, I was trying to work 30 hours a week and again, have this great work-life balance. So what I did is I started hiring other working moms. So other moms that had left the industry that knew this industry as well as I did. And I built this conglomerate of consultants. We were at the time called Contract Consulting Group that were just as passionate about the contract interiors industry as I was, that had incredible skill sets, but for whatever reason, they didn't want to work traditional hours. Again, it started around other working moms, but I'll say we ended up with a 40-year-old who wanted to spend the summers on a dude ranch. We had an empty nester who just you know, wanted to be able to travel with her husband, but still wanted to work. We even had a veteran, one of our graphic designers at one point, who was going through some PTSD issues and really Mm -hmm. wanted to work and wanted to do great work, but not on the traditional timeline. So all of that built up to the forums that you're talking about. Those forums were uh, conducted around contract furniture specifically in conjunction with CBRE that really kind of put us on the map ultimately led to our discovery and acquisition by Sandow, who's the parent company to Interior Design, Metropolis, several other different entities. Um, But that takes us up to just pre-pandemic, where, you know, everyone had a tough 2020. And it was certainly a big adjustment. But I think there's lots of resilience even leading up to that pandemic that we could probably talk about. Yeah. So, I mean, lots of flexibility, allowing people to kind of create their own roles. That's pretty interesting to me. So Amanda, one of the things that really stands out is when you were leading contract consulting group, you had a real variety of work situations that you accommodated. I'm not sure where that comes from or even how you manage an organization with that much latitude on how they work. It reminds me a little bit of the movie Moneyball, where the phrase, an island of misfit toys, described, you know, Oakland A's and how they were putting this group together that performed amazingly, but were not the norm. Where did that come from for you? You know, I just think everyone wants to do their best work. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of our work cultures were built by people who didn't have to juggle some of these things, you know, who didn't have to juggle kids when you think about it, where stay-at-home moms were the ones kind of, you know, taking care of everything. And, um, you know, I am so... um, excited to have been surrounded by so many women that I admire so much in this world. And it was very sad for me to see so many of them leaving the workforce because it didn't fit with the traditional nine to five. It didn't fit to the traditional type of volume of work you had to put out. And so I like to think that we were very early on with some of the struggles that the whole workforce in a post-pandemic world is trying to work through. There was a, a great article during the pandemic that said you can have a career or a kid, you can't have both in 2020. 
And I think many of us were struggling through that before the world was, even as early as 2011 when we were starting this business. Well, and another area you were really early in adopting was the whole world of blogging and working for the Huffington Post. And how did that evolve and where did that come from? Because I keep seeing these trends. You're in early, you're pioneering, but where did all that come from in the blogging side? Yeah, I think a lot of this follows that don't plan your path too closely mm. and just carpe the diem when something gets in front of you. Get on it like a dog on a bone. So the way that I started blogging for the Huffington Post is one of those first two clients that I mentioned was a little company called Idea Paint. It is a whiteboard paint that you uh, paint on a wall and it turns the wall into a whiteboard. And I joined them to help them with a new product launch as a consultant. And they had a very powerful PR firm and they needed contributors. Well, I came from the world of office furniture. I was just fascinated by this world of work and how it was evolving and had followed that my whole career. And they said, hey, would you be interested in being a content provider on behalf of Idea Paint for the Huffington Post? So they opened this column in my name. The first article I wrote, I think it took me about 10 hours to write <laughs> uh, to give you an idea. Now it takes me about an hour and a half because I've been doing this long enough. So it was probably pretty terrible. I could probably go back and find that first one. But again, with the fearlessness, like just dive in, do the best you can. And I learned pretty quickly. Blogging is a very lonely world. It is a, a vulnerability from all your podcasting and putting yourself out there to the world. Every time you hit send is a little bit anxiety provoking. That anxiety is followed by a lot of silence. You don't always know who's reading it or what's happening. There's not always immediate feedback, but I was amazed by two things. Uh, the first is how much, regardless if anybody was listening at all, how much that helped me make my own thoughts so much more mm. succinct. I yes. think now I do a lot of public speaking. And I think one of the reasons I'm a great orator is because I have forced myself over the last decade to learn to say what I really want to say is in writing. And if you can force yourself of clarity in writing, it also helps and translates right. to yeah. verbal. Um, and I would say the other thing is that even though it feels like no one's listening in this day and age of so much digital content, especially coming to everyone, what I'm always impressed at is when I go out in the world and you hear people with these anecdotal stories that say, I heard you there, or I read that or something like that, how much, even though you're not getting that feedback, people are listening and somehow your story, your point, your content, your insights, your information is getting through in ways you won't even know today, but are going to come back to you tenfold, a year, 10 years, five minutes from now, who knows? Yeah. So I was late to the whole social media game because of the pandemic. I just focused on LinkedIn and now going out and traveling, I'm just surprised at how many people come up at the conferences and just say, hey, we saw the post on the barn or we saw this thing going on or thank you for that article. And I, I think you're right. We underestimate who's watching, who's listening. Let's get up to the time frame just before you started uh, Think Lab and you had the acquisition from Sandow. So you were going through lots of change and figuring out how to fit into the organization and people stuff. Then the pandemic hits. When was the first time your gut told you, uh, this is going to be a big deal? Uh, the pandemic? Yes. Wow. So super interesting. So my last trip 
pre-pandemic was actually, I got home on March 9th, 2020. That Friday, I pulled my kids from school because I'm thinking, well, we're going to be locked down for two weeks anyway. So what's one more day? And it was almost, it was over a full year later before my kids were fully, fully back in school. Wow. Um, So really interesting to think back on kind of those mindsets. And I think that I share in this that few of us could have really seen just how profound and how long this was going to last. So there's the initial hit. You think it's going to be a couple, we all did. A couple weeks we'll be back to normal. What's kind of the, the mental journey or the emotional journey of going through, okay, we'll get through this. And then it's, hmm, now it's some fundamental changes. What was going on in your household? Yeah, I had the same struggle that every working parent did. So Mm. my husband works some pretty long hours. I work some pretty long hours and we couldn't abandon our children. There was no place to send them. Thankfully for our situation, again, this seems to be a running theme in this interview, but my parents were there to support. So my parents Mm. were able to really step up on the kid front, on the home front and help with two of mine are young enough to not be able to self-manage on homeschool and things like that. So uh, my mother really stepped in on the kid front to support us there. And that was good because I will tell you that my business really took off during the pandemic. One of the interesting things about selling research to an industry that is not used to having research is that I often joke, it's a little bit like selling counseling services. Like if someone comes to me and says they need it, like, great, we can sell them services, but I can't go out and say, Hey, Rex, I think you might need some counseling services because uh, (laughs) it makes it sound like I'm suggesting you don't know what you're talking about. But when this pandemic hit, we all of a sudden had common issues that we could all agree were challenges that we didn't collectively know how to work around. So my team starting that month of March, 2020 was instantly working 12 hour days. We started putting a lot of content out there, really to be quite honest, sharing a lot of what we already had built around. One of our first content pieces that we put out there was around work from home and how to help your people make this transition because our company was built on a work from home model. So making sure emotionally they're all set up and they have that foundation to be able to focus on work, just like kids that aren't getting meals, you can't ask them to focus on algebra when they haven't had breakfast. I think that's the case for a lot of our workers. So we talked about building a foundation around emotional needs and cultural needs within the office. Like, are they by processes set up to succeed? And then focusing on the physical environment, because you really have to have kind of that emotional safety, those work processes in place before you can even focus on the physical environment, which of course, coming from office furniture is where everyone wants to talk. Well, and you are also one of the early adopters of Clubhouse, and you created kind of a social forum. You invited me, you know, that was my first time coming to Clubhouse. So I'm part of that older generation, really enjoyed it. And it really felt like that intimacy of radio. So what led you to Clubhouse and what did you learn using that? Well, I think as a research firm, our answers are only as good as the questions that were asked. So what I was looking for was just a way to drive authentic conversation as an Mm. industry. Again, going back to 
that 2017 work that we did around the Furniture Forum, a lot of what made that authentic and meaningful was that we were able to, for the first time, facilitate cross-functional industry dialogues. We had manufacturers, we had dealers, we had end users and clients, we had everything in between to really facilitate these conversations. So again, I think one of the doorways that opened up by the pandemic was really digital formats that everyone was open to in new ways than ever before. Before we were hosting these conversations first in Chicago, then in DC, even when we've done other activities like that, they were typically private and on site. And what I love about the clubhouse format is it really invites this authenticity. You can be Pinterest perfect, you can be Instagram perfect, you can be Facebook perfect, but when it comes to Clubhouse, there is no fake in it. You are joining that conversation, (laughs) you are in it, and you know what you're talking about or you don't. So what I love about that platform, and we still do our Clubhouse sessions every Friday morning uh, at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard in our room design and data with Think Lab, is that we can really facilitate these cross-functional conversations. We typically have someone within the industry and someone from kind of an odd perspective or outside the industry that we wouldn't have probably paired uh, with our industry to really drive these authentic conversations about, I would say, things that often happen after the event, at the cocktails that happen after the event, but aren't happening on stage. And we're trying to bring those conversations to stage. Neat. I I thoroughly enjoyed it. It, I grew up just enthralled with radio and uh, my mom used to listen to uh, WBBM every morning. So I heard it, it was always in the background, but the conversations and it's just a different experience. When you engage the ear, it's intimate and it brings you in. So I really appreciate your introducing me to that platform. Can I tell Uh, you what else I love about it? Yeah, absolutely. One of the other things I love about it is, again, back to this vulnerability and authenticity, is that Mm. you can actually multitask much easier. Probably not when you're the one facilitating, but as a listener, you know, what I love as as a working mom, why I podcast so much, I know you're a big fan of podcasts as well, is that I can listen while I go for a run or put a podcast in while I'm doing the dishes or even, don't judge me, but while I'm watching a soccer game, right? When they're eight years old, it's not that exciting. So, you know, you can kind of enhance your brain while you're still there for your children. So it allows me to multitask. And if you hear Clubhouse too, or whether we're talking podcast or Clubhouse, it really allows some of this flexibility that I think leads to better work-life balance and the ability to kind of multitask. You hear people on Clubhouse all the time that are out walking their dog while they're listening to a Clubhouse session. I do it every Saturday morning. There's a room that I love to listen to. So every Saturday at 8.30 a.m., I put my earbuds in and go listen to that live discussion. So I do like the idea of, again, that platform to me supports not only this authenticity, but this idea of flexibility and work-life balance that I think is so desperately needed for all of our mental health right now. So you've given me a new way to consider Clubhouse. And when I walk the property, I'll put a Clubhouse on as I'm observing and and just, you know, and, and you can hear little things the trigger because I know what you're talking about in terms of oh there's a theme I want to pay attention to or there's a voice that captures my interest let's talk a little bit about your wiring your strengths so just as a refresher of your Clifton strengths, communication is the top one. And 
you're doing exactly that, your research and your communication and your speaking, winning others over, that's woo. You're the irresistible force in terms of persuasion. When you combine those two, they reinforce each other. And so being articulate, being persuasive, and then futuristic, that visionary side kind of fits what you do, research and development. Then there is this uh, family trait called responsibility, loyalty, obligation, duty, and um, we sometimes call it the guilt strength. It's kind of that little voice in your that conscience that you always hear that you should or could be doing something more or better. And then activator, that catalyst to just dive in. It's that fearlessness. You know, we talked about the fearlessness earlier. That's that activator side. So that's a little bit of your profile. And you're you're one of those unique combinations that see teams, organizations holistically and naturally elevate the performances of groups or teams. You you just naturally do that. So when you look through the lens of how you're wired, you know, first of all, you're extremely self-aware because all of your stories, I can just check off that you're operating in the way you naturally would operate, what you naturally do best and enjoy most. For you, through the pandemic, where did you find yourself playing to their strengths and where did you have a hard time doing it? Yeah, I guess all of those culminate in a level of intensity that I will say is not for everyone. I am awake <laughs> at 4 a.m., right? Every every sword has a double edge, right? So right. I'm awake <laughs> at 4 a.m. I have usually run and drank my protein shake and done about two hours of work before most people's feet hit the floor in the morning. And that is what allowed my business to succeed through this pandemic is just kind of put your head down and Mm. get your work done and, and go, 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 go. And I think that that is what allowed my business to succeed. I can also tell you that it is exhausting working for me. Um, because (laughs) there is an inherent residual effect that kind of takes place to everyone else. And because I have a fearlessness to work hard and do whatever needs to be done, there are times where I have to make sure that we're doing the right things that do actually need Mm -hmm. to be done. And it's something that I'm working with my whole team on right now, because I will say we all put our heads down. We all grew the business in a pandemic and we are coming out of this pandemic. uh, I mean, more than double what we went into it. It's It's been phenomenal to watch and see, and we've reframed our business in a lot of ways. But the conversations I'm having with my team right now is that there's a time and place for sprints, but you cannot sprint for three years counting. Right. Um, so we've got to make sure to kind of protect our mental health to sprint when we need to, but also you know relax when we need to. And I'll say that's a skill that I'm still working on and getting rid of the the guilt, as you say, of not working and always knowing there's something yeah. more I could be doing at home, something more I could be doing at work, and you know finding a way to tell myself it's okay if you can't do it all because the truth is that you might be able to do it all for a little while and it may look at the uh, from the outside like someone's doing it all uh, but the reality is everyone has their breaking point and um, you know it's been interesting to me I will say as the world starts to release you know at the time of this recording it is April of 2022 and I've started traveling again after almost two whole years of zero travel. 
when prior to the pandemic, I was more than 50% of the time traveling. And I can say that I have a, a new awareness and appreciation for my limits in terms of on time as I have gone on this diet of, of no on time and no face to face time. Now, as I start to travel again, balancing the guilt of the work that's stacking up behind the scenes that normally I'd be attentive to with the energy that it requires to be face to face and traveling all day and then work events and then dinners and then drinks and then very little sleep and get up and do it again. And I'm learning to balance that in new ways now than I ever have before. Yeah. And I think that's true for a lot of us. You know, in 2019, I had 52 business trips, about uh, 120 days on the road. And it was a big shift. And I'm experiencing the same as you. Last week, I flew first first trip with not a, without a mask. That, that was interesting. But getting that balance, is there one particular kind of self-care habit that you have noticed, this is the one thing I got to make sure on a daily basis to, to stay the best version of myself. This is what I got to do. For me, first of all, it's running. I have to run. Yep. I always say I run the crazy out. So I've knew, known that even pre-pandemic. But I think the thing that I've maybe learned from the pandemic that I am trying to, I guess, establish is giving myself permission, knowing that there's always more that could be done. But you know, whether it's permission to say deal. to my team, it is a big deal. Say to my team, I'm traveling today, I'm in and out. If I try to stay on top of emails, I'm going to miss something and it's not going to go well for either of us. So you know what, I'm going to catch up on everything when I'm back in the office tomorrow morning. So if you need me in the meantime, text me or Slack me, don't email me. It's those little communication things that kind of sets mm. boundaries about here's how not only I can be my best, but how I can do my best work for you to support what you have to get done. That's neat. I'll, I'll share a short story of a client I had. Had a similar profile of yours. They had responsibility and continually saying yes. And the word no didn't exist. So we worked to the point of first recognizing and recognizing the feeling that if she said no, it was kind of, she felt guilty about letting somebody down. And so she came up with a phrase when people asked her things and it wasn't her direct responsibility. She said the old responsibility me would have said, yes, the new responsibility me says that I need to take care of myself first. And that's a big shift. So giving yourself that permission, I think I've heard that from a lot of people that they're realizing that they were on a treadmill. Once the treadmill stopped, they started reexamining. Why am I doing this? Is it what I really want to be doing? And all of that. During the pandemic for your family, were there some kind of new blessings or things that you rediscovered that were really great? And were there some real challenges or places that just kind of brought you down a bit? Yeah, I mean, I will say in March of 2021, which if you think about what was happening at that time, vaccines were just rolling out and widely available. And they were hard to come by. I live in Chicago. Also in Chicago, the weather was horrid. And I've spoken a lot about my parents support for my kids and schooling. And they tend to go south for the winter. 
So we made the collective decision as a family that if my mom's helping out with schooling, we need to be close to them. So either they couldn't go or we had to go with them. And there were many reasons to go down there. Availability of vaccines at the time, nice weather, which all of us were struggling with these long working hours and the grayness that can be Chicago that time of year and just the ability to be together. So we rented a house in Alabama for the month of March 2021. And it's so interesting because if you ask my kids, I have three boys that are now eight, 11, and 13. If you ask them their favorite family vacation ever, they will tell you Fairhope, Alabama. And it's so funny. It is a nice place, but we didn't even take vacation. I worked the whole darn time we were down there. But what we did do is when work was over, we carpeted the DM. We enjoyed every moment as a family, family walks, you know, we went to the beach, we sat out at the pool. And I think it's so it's been so impactful to me to say, like to hear my kids say that that's their favorite vacation. And we've certainly taken much more expensive vacations that did, you know, more touristy things that you think families should do on vacations. And what mattered to my three little boys was that family time that we spent outside of work on a vacation, I'm using air quotes, that we didn't even really take, (laughs) right? Um, Right. So I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned in there. Now, you've used the phrase carpe diem a few times. I'm sure most people know that it means seize the day, but where did that come from for you? Because it seems to be kind of a seize the moment, seize the day. And you may be interested, there's another phrase called carpe punctum, which is seize the moment. Oh, I like that. I like that, which probably is a good uh, reminder of mindfulness. And for me, not multitasking and actually being in the moment that would be really important and healthy for me mentally. But I'll say it has become a real kind of internal mantra for all of us at Think Lab, because I think to look at the number of times that we've had to pivot and reorient Mm. this business and the transformation that we have made for this business in the last three years, it has not always been a plan that we could have seen. Much like the early days of my career, it was looking at the opportunities immediately available to you and really taking every opportunity that comes like a dog on a bone and making sure that you see it through Mm. to the best of our ability. What was the hardest transition for you and the team moving into that pandemic? Moving into the pandemic, there were a lot of things that were really hard just in terms of the workload and the intensity. But a lot of that was because so many opportunities opened to us. If you look at something as simple as focus groups, where we would have had to go East Coast, West Coast, Chicago, and that would have been so much time and maybe become cost prohibitive. Now we could do coast to coast focus groups in a matter of days because everyone was all of a sudden open to doing them virtually. Um, So we were able to get better feedback faster at a more affordable price for our clients. And I was able to leverage the team I had in place in ways that made just much more efficient use for them. So I think the biggest struggle was probably not pain in the sense where like all of a sudden we have to reframe. It was almost relief in the sense that the world was open to new approaches that maybe they wouldn't have been open to before. But that also comes with some trial and error of figuring out the best ways to do it, which we had to do really quickly because the business was there, the demand was there. So it was kind of an exciting period professionally, but a really challenging one to kind of figure out how to balance the sheer quantity workload and stress with everything else, the, the, the workload and stress that was happening at home too.
So I've got a lot of more questions to go into, but I'm going to narrow it down to a couple. One, right now, there's a lot of effort in returning back to the office and it's all over the map and there's resistance and the great, you know, the big quit and all of that. From your lens, with all the clients you're seeing, what do you see that's working well? Where do you see some of the key mistakes being made? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting in my travels because especially focusing on the architecture and design industry, I feel like the comments that I get quite frequently are, you know, why are design firms not leading the way back to the office? And we should be uh, not talking about hybrid work. We should be, you know, if you basically, if you make the policies, the workers will come. And I just, I, I, I dislike those conversations on a number of fronts. I, I don't think that I don't think the office is dying. I don't think that, you know, hybrid work means the death of the office. I think quite the opposite. I think that hybrid work means that we've got to get smarter about how we leverage these physical spaces. And I applaud anyone who is taking this as an opportunity to attract flies to honey. I think this might have been on one of the clubhouses that you joined us on, Rex, but where you hear about the great resignation, but I think even louder than the great resignation is the great reevaluation. And everyone is reevaluating their time and how it's spent and right. where they want to be. And if I'm going to be, you know, as a mother, if I'm going to be away from my kids, am I making a difference in the world? Am I doing something meaningful? And I think that these last few years, and definitely the pandemic has caused many of us to rethink a lot of things. And my oh, personal hope is that we come out of this holding on to the silver lining of these three years to make the world a better new normal rather than just being eager to return to something that feels familiar, but broken, but comfortable. Familiar, but broken, but comfortable. I love that. <laughs> you know, when I look at it too, I see three key mistakes. You know, one is what I call the cave-in strategy, whatever you want, you know, Come back whenever you feel like it. We'll send you a postcard. We love you. Then there's the crackdown. So the cave-in is kind of the, the West Coast approach. Crackdown is the Wall Street approach. You know, have your rear end in, in the seat vaccinated by Monday or you're fired. Then the third is kind of the arbitrary, you know, Tuesday through Wednesday, Thursday we come in, Friday, Monday we don't. I have yet to see any company craft a narrative on what is it that we can do together that we can't do separate and design for that and express that. I've not seen that. Maybe you have. Has, it, has anybody crafted that narrative on the value of a workplace where we can come together? I think you can often craft that narrative by looking at opposite extremes. And we've had hundreds and hundreds of years to create this in-person work culture that is accepted as norms today. And so I've been following a company called GitLab. We interviewed them on our podcast. I'm sure you're familiar with some of the work that they're yeah. doing. They're a wholly remote company. And what I like about their approach is they freely admit fully remote is not for everyone. And running a fully remote company myself, half of my team members have never met still. We had a 
discussion in the chat on a Zoom the other day about how tall everyone was. And we were shocked to find that <laughs> our digital marketing person is only five foot tall because she presents much larger on screen. I, I think wholly digital, wholly remote company is not for everyone. But what GitLab is doing that's so interesting to me is they're writing playbooks about how to have these conversations with oh, your nice. teams. Okay. They fully admit that hybrid is the hardest. It's much easier to pull off the Band-Aid and go one way or stay with where our culture has kind of designed this working world for decades and the better part of a century, right? So what's really, really difficult is to have these humble, vulnerable, open conversations to really fight through some of these issues in within a polarized world that are very, very difficult to figure mm. out this next new better normal that we all want to be a part of. In this era, we're all moving so fast that sometimes it's tough to find the time to slow down and have these touchy-feely conversations that can be a bit uncomfortable. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I'm not sure if you sent me the Salesforce article on the retreat they're doing. Yes, I did. And, well, thank you. And it was great confirmation because, you know, I didn't set out to create a leadership retreat center on the ranch. Um, it was something my wife came up with as we were vacationing a year ago, say, hey, let's buy the ranch. And it's a bigger story than that. But what I'm finding and hearing is that People do want to get together, but they don't necessarily want to get together in a conference room, in a hotel, or an office. So it's been interesting in the different kinds of ways people want to gather. One of my clients, they're building outdoor facilities just to give people different ways to experience one another. So Amanda, I thank you for coming aboard and talking about all your stories and the pivoting. What does the future look like in the next minute or so? Just paint a picture of where you're going to be in a couple of years, knowing that you're going to be pivoting in the world. But what do you see the next year or two looking like? You know, I think this is, again, part of my futurist, but we are always looking for these future indicators of where the world is headed so we can find our next carpe to DM right? As we look forward to the world. So what we are doing is we are tracking this industry and we are looking for these weak signals and early indicators of where the world is headed. And I am eager to digest those, not only for my own business to figure out how we can grow and find fulfillment from our work, but also how we can help our clients really do the same for their businesses. Amanda, thank you so much for coming on. I'm going to be circling back because you've raised lots of interesting things. I want to follow up with you. And again, good luck to you and your organization. And I appreciate you taking this time. Awesome. I always love talking to you, Rex. So thanks so much for inviting me. And I look forward to the continued discussion. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd appreciate a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Please check out the other Imagine a Place podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about building resilience, you can follow me on LinkedIn.